So uh, here we are back, back on the final segment of episode eight of um, Unexceptional Americans. And we're going to talk about past week in history has featured both the birthday of Paul Robeson and the death day of Emiliano Zapata. Um, and so we're going to kick it off with Nick, uh, just going into detail about that a little bit. So take us away. Well, um, well, history, you know, there's, there's the saying that the Lord giveth and he taketh away. Um, so yesterday, back, not yesterday, last week, sorry. Uh, last week had back to back, um, two important days, a birthday and a death day. Um, April 9th was the birthday of Paul Robeson, uh, a mi- an amazing singer. People should know that. That's mainly what he's known for. That's what his career was. Um, a very successful bass baritone, uh, lovely, strong voice. But he's also lesser known for, well, he's known for also for being a civil rights activist, but lesser known is the fact that he was actually a card-carrying member of the Communist Party of the United States of America, who um, visited the Soviet Union and said, and um, I'm sort of quoting here, that, that it, he said of the Soviet Union that that is the first place where he felt like a man. He's also known for, in an interview uh, in Australia, going on a brief little tirade explaining that, um, that he describes himself as an Afro-American because in addition to being an American, he's an African and is known as, because he is, that's where his ancestors came from and he is known for having, that. it's mainly known for the line in his little uh, speech that he gives off the cuff in this interview, um, or you could call it like a monologue, I guess, where he says, my ancestors built this place and there's a lot of America that belongs to me yet. And that, is very important. I think this is a legacy that a lot of people should um, remember and look back on, especially in light of um, our modern sort of vision of politics. The idea that, you know, some people might be too far left. It might be wildly out of the spectrum uh, and out of the mainstream and therefore should be ignored. Um, and the modern conception of how race and politics line up. Um, it goes to show you that, well, first off, uh, some of the only people who are actually doing any real civil rights organizing outside of the NAACP for a long time were communists and socialists. I'm sort of putting to rest this whole idea that socialism is somehow white, inherently white or inherently European. Um, because as we know, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, Paul Robeson, um, Malcolm X, all had connections to, at the time, like the Eastern Bloc, like those kinds of people, those kinds of capital C communists that I don't really, dis- that I don't really agree with a whole lot. Um, I don't really like those, those political projects a whole lot, but... We do have, but I do think we have to re-examine history and understand why certain people in certain times from certain backgrounds um, supported those countries yeah. and those projects. Good conversation to have. Why it was worth supporting it, and it's partly because, well, you know, 
I'm not sure what the situation with anti-black racism would be today in Russia under Putin. I have a feeling it'd be a lot different from what it was during the Soviet period, or maybe it's not that different at all. During the Soviet period, the Soviet Union did promote and did support the national liberation movements of Africa and Asia across the world. Supported, you know, in some cases, yes, they did so at the expense of the communist parties in those countries. It's very complicated geopolitically. But in general, the Soviet Union supported the liberation movements in the Congo that fought the Belgians, the liberation movements in Mozambique that fought the Portuguese. Uh, in some cases, they supported the Iranians, uh, the various Iranian left-wing and nationalist movements that opposed British and American imperialism, um, such as the Which Communist Which had they Party. been more successful might have, you know, avoided having the current regime, Is, the yeah, Islamic the, Republic, yeah. Yeah, um, if we hadn't overthrown Mozadek, we wouldn't have set history down that course, um, who was aligned with that Communist Party in Iran, the Tudek Party. Um, and the Soviet Union also openly said to America, you know, you speak of liberty, but for who? You speak of freedom, but for who? And there's no longer a check like that on the United States because obviously the only, the only great power in the world that really challenges the United States or could is China. And they don't tend to do things that openly um, China doesn't really also ideologically have the same motivations to do that. Um, so, you know, it, it's sort of something that is lacking I think, I think in today's Chinese, world. The Chinese Communist Party today is almost entirely divorced from any kind of, you know, worker-based leftism. Yeah. Like, they, it, they are, they, like, even under Mao, who obviously did a lot of terrible things too but Mao was you know more of a like ideologue about about working about workers and of the world and like of that kind yeah. of thing than yeah. like Xi Jinping who is basically just like a, a fascist in a communist name yeah like a, a I tend to just, yeah I tend to just stick with calling him like a he's just a nationalist he's a Han yeah. Chinese sort of Confucian yeah, authoritarian yeah, nationalist yeah. and uh and you know that sort of, and obviously we know there's actually like a fair bit of anti-black racism in Chinese culture like you know like there's that McDonald there's a story about the McDonald's in China that banned black people for some reason um and then tried to say they were following health regulations yeah, for sure. I know I know um, in some in some uh, recently especially as China's you know Burgundy middle class has risen. There's because they've become a major market for things. There's been a pressure in Hollywood to not cast black actors in movies that are, you know, maybe will be better in China because that could kind of undercut their profits there. Yeah. But that's, yeah. um, the relationship back then, back in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, all the way up to the end, pretty much. Um, between the Soviet Union and the United States was very different from the relationship now between China and the United States, where the Soviet Union actually actively supported and promoted black liberation around the world and anti-colonial and national liberation. And that's how they saw the cause of civil, the struggle of civil rights here in the United States. 
And Paul Robeson is a person whose legacy has sort of been in large part forgot that he was out there saying socialism is the way that we will actually get equality between the races. Because capitalism, obviously, you know, the market rewards those who already have capital and those who already have capital when in our history, since we distributed it unequally along racial lines, it tends to put white people ahead. And that's it, would kind of, social, yeah. it would be socialist policies, like a, a jobs guarantee, full employment, um, democratization housing. of workplaces, socialized housing, things like that, that would reduce uh, socialized medicine, that would reduce those inequalities. That would probably bring them down to, to nil. Um, and Paul Robeson is just a person who generally, um, I'm just going to leave it uh, on, like, that's a person whose legacy we should remember especially when it comes to this. And um, moving on to the opposite end of the cycle where he was born in 1898 on April 9th, uh, he was, there was also the unfortunate day of Emiliano Zapata's execution um, in 1919, uh, was on, I think, Friday of last week. Yeah, April 10th. And the thing about Emiliano Zapata is that he inspired a revolution and a revolutionary movement that continues to this very day. The EZLN that controls uh, Chiapas in Mexico. Is, its full name is the Ejército Zapatista de Liberación Nacional. Um, the Na, the Zapatista National Liberation Army. They're named after Zapata. And they started in southern Mexico, which um, Emiliano Zapata was the leader of the revolutionary movement in the state of Morelos, which is directly to the south of Mexico City, but due to a whole bunch of geography reasons, it's actually pretty hard to get from the Mexico City, you know, the, the District Federal uh, into uh, Morales due to mountains and uh, jungles and things like that um, that, hap- that exists in central and south central Mexico. But this was an area where farmers, predominantly campesinos of predominantly uh, indigenous descent, worked and labored for thousands of years in the same space. And it was the capitalist development of Mexico under Porfirio Diaz. Um, a U.S. bat, the first U.S. We should. I might call this. Might actually not be exactly accurate. I'm actually no. I'm pretty confident in saying this. The first U.S. backed dictator in Latin America, uh, Porfirio Diaz, um, was. You know, he was sort of a, de- a developmentalist. Today, you know, you might call him someone who prescribed to modernization theory, who basically said Mexico is not ready for democracy. First, we have to have uh, prosperity. Order and ordo y progreso was his uh, was his motto, uh, a motto that was carried on by U.S. backed dictators across Latin America. Um, Diaz is also the person who coined a phrase that I actually love to repeat: uh, "Poor Mexico, so far from God, so close to the United States." Um, and um, Diaz was overthrown towards the end of his life in the 1911 revolution, which is a path that played a great deal, a great role um, that brought in Mexico's first attempt at, well, not first attempt, one of its like second or third attempts at democracy. It's first attempt within the 20th century. It's first attempt after decades of the Porfiriarto, the dictatorship of Diaz. 
and Zapata was the leader of a peasant revolution in southern Mexico, a spirit, the spirit of which continues to this day and is embodied by the EZLN that operates basically a bunch of rural communes um, that, in which all the land is collectively owned. It's held in common. They began their armed uprising on the day NAFTA was signed in 1991, I believe, when Vincente Pop. Yes, 94, uh, when uh, Vincente Fox, uh, the president of Mexico, the first non-pre-president of Mexico from the controlled opposition conservative PAN party, uh, signed it into law. And it was this revolution. Um, I'm basically just, this is sort of all confused. I'm, I'm putting it out in sort of a weird, confused way. But Zapata was the man who started he was a real committed ideologue and revolutionary a lot of people in america like to remember pancho villa who was basically zapata's equivalent in the north because there's the very romantic legend and myth of him and also the fact that we in the united states have to like learn about him because of his involvement with the united states but zapata was a much more committed anti-imperialist a much more committed person to the idea that the Mexican people should be sovereign over Mexico, not a clique of mostly um, white or white-ish from an American perspective, we would call it like white-ish, um, but Mexico, you would pretty much just say like criollos who sell out the country to gringos and to, to, Northern, to Northern imperialists, to interests in the United States, in Canada, and in Europe who want to strip Mexico of everything it's worth. And it is the ideological movement of Zapatismo, the legacy of Zapata, that resulted in the Constitution of 1917 in Mexico being one of the most revolutionary constitutions that, that has been written down. A constitution that has written into it that the land of Mexico belongs to the Mexican people as a whole. And therefore, if you want to mine anything, like this is this is a thing that a lot of people don't know about Mexico that in order to mine in Mexico, in order to drill for oil or dig for whatever minerals you're going after or gold or silver, you ha you actually can't own the land itself. You have to pay a rent to the government because the land per the constitution is the common inheritance of all the Mexican people. And that is a legacy of Emiliano Zapata and the struggle of Zapatismo and the Zapatistas in Morelos and the campesinos of southern Mexico who fought for the common ownership of land and the prevention of commonly held lands being split up by the process of the primitive accumulation of capital. Uh, by capitalist interests that wanted to take the land, sell it off to large, uh, you know, company-owned farms and to mines owned by foreign industrialists, by people who don't even live in the country. And it would be sold off by a clique of kleptocrats who run the country from Mexico City and don't give a damn what happens outside of it, especially what happens to Maya uh, and other indigenous farmers in Chiapas and Oaxaca and Morelos. And that is the legacy of Zapatismo. When today he was betrayed, not today, uh, on April 10th, on April 10th, 1919, he was betrayed by the people he believed were his allies. 
tricked into coming to Mexico City for a meeting, kidnapped and executed. And that is a legacy that should be honored, respected. Now we in the United States, there's a lot of talk about solidarity with this or that part of the world. The United States, the imperial legacy, the legacy of American imperialism in Mexico has continued to this very day. The United States yes. from, from 18, from the, whenever Americans uh, started settling in Texas till this very day, the United States has always treated Mexico like a colony. Yes. Uh, you, to put it nicely, to put it the nicest way you could put it is treating it like a junior partner in what should be a trade relationship of equals. What is rea in reality treating it in a putting it into a colonial position, into a subservient position, where the United States can cheaply force, can cheaply import desperate working people and then deport them at will and can import cheap resources. Yeah, that's a pretty good and way. Yes. So it, yeah. this is just us basically just saying to remember the legacy of the struggle of, and of anti-imperialism that both Paul Robeson and Emiliano, Emiliano Zapata um, embody. Yes. So, and with that, I think this concludes episode eight. Mm -hmm. Thank you guys for tuning in and uh, we'll see you on Wednesday with another, another special episode. So uh, tune in. Tune in. Thanks. Goodbye. Mm -hmm.